A few days ago, um, Kate Osmore, Labour MP, was uh, suspended from the Labour Party because she sent on on the eve of Holocaust Memorial Day, she sent uh, an email saying basically tomorrow is Holocaust Memorial Day, international an international day to remember six million Jews murdered during the Holocaust, the millions of other people murdered under Nazi persecution of other groups, and more recent genocides in Cambodia, Rwanda, Bosnia, and now Gaza. And as you can probably imagine, she was she was suspended because of mentioning uh, Gaza. It's interesting, many people have noticed noted that a Holocaust Memorial Day Trust itself, they say on their website and their literature that they encourage uh, remembrance uh, of all types of genocide since the Nazi Holocaust of Jews, right, where six million people, six million Jews were murdered uh, during the Holocaust. And they say alongside millions of others murdered under Nazi persecution and of other groups and uh, during other more recent genocides in Cambodia, Rwanda, Bosnia, and Darfur, as I mentioned. Um, now, considering, as many people have pointed out, the ICJ ruling uh, last week that uh, uh, Israel is now effectively on trial for genocide, and meaning that it is a legitimate, legally legitimate opinion to believe that Israel's onslaught in Gaza is a genocide, we thought it's very, very important for us to... Um, to kind of get the narrative straight here and get people to understand what can we learn in terms of remembrance from the Holocaust. What are some of the um, some of the the, the um, parallels and uh, so forth when it comes to what's happening in Gaza? And obviously yourself, Sheikh uh, Dr. Osman Latif, uh, historian. Your name came to mind, of course. Um, so I'll just start. You, you've of course um, travelled to Auschwitz, who traveled to Munich, traveled to different places around the world and done, carried out extensive research into um, not just the Holocaust, but genocides and also the things that lead up to genocide, such as dehumanization and othering and, and things that can, you know, put a spanner in the works, so to speak, for, um, you know, uh, moving a society or moving a people away from genocidal tendencies, i.e. empathy and, and, and rehumanization and so forth. But... Um, I guess I'll start with a question. Many people have, have, have said this: Is the Holocaust? Is it correct to say that the Holocaust? This is one of the things that people say you know, to to try and put attention away from other genocides, like the genocide of the people of Gaza right now. Is it correct to say that the Holocaust is the worst uh, of human suffering? Bismillah, Muhammad, Muhammad. Thank you so much, Zakhir, for having me on the program. I think there's a lot, in fact, that you've already said uh, that I want to. I want to touch into I think that I think that the ladies' comments making this correlation between the events of the Holocaust and more current conflict and genocides is is very appropriate and apt. I think it stems from a, a deeper sense of human consciousness, a deeper sense of real empathy. There are of course different strands of empathy. There mm -hmm. is a blank empathy, there is also a witness empathy. And witness empathy is when you're able to make those correlations and associations by drawing on what once was and what might what seems to be like now. When I was in Auschwitz, by the way, uh, something struck us because we finished our tour of Birkenau mm. and our tour guide, a Polish lady, uh, concluded uh, the visit of Auschwitz, Birkenau, by saying that the fact that Syria is happening today, my discipline of Syria war and Syria was happening, she said it's a proof that the world hasn't learned its lesson from Auschwitz. And we were really struck by what she says as a non-Muslim because we thought she's making a very human, uh, conscientious association mm. between what once was and what is happening today. And I think that we can't make that association. We're missing the point uh, of what we're supposed to derive as lessons from human conflict, from human suffering. Otherwise, whatever we think uh, was what, what once was remains mm. in a static time and when I have to derive lessons for today. And that really is not the way that we should look at all events historical and also the the uh, the relevance of our present. So I think that that's a key thing. So I think the fact that she made that correlation between- It reminds me uh, of- um... And what's happening in Gaza and Bosnia and other places is very apt mm. and appropriate. Reminds I me think of a, a, what, what the, sorry to cut you off. Reminds me of the do a doctor who returned recently from Gaza. He said, in on LBC in a, in a ready interview with James O'Brien, he said, the reason why this is happening or this is allowed to happen is because the world allowed it to happen in Syria. 
you know, indiscriminate killing. Right. And because it, you know, you know, it was allowed, it was, it was just um, kind of it, it happened, and and um, it set a precedent almost. Um, it happened again in Gaza, and it's becoming worse. Right? Well, so, then this is then this is a problem then with in in seeing an event like the Holocaust mm. as something like um, not to take anything away from the extent of the tragedy of human suffering, of course, in the Holocaust, but we shouldn't see it as an event that is uh, kind of locked in time and nothing can therefore be uh, done in e either equal measure or mm -hmm. in, in similar fashion. I think that that's a danger. And I think that one of the reasons why you could have the danger of indifference is because uh, you always have something in your mind that might surpass that in terms of historical consciousness. And I think that's a danger. The fact that our talk I could say by looking at the in the in the in the barracks of of uh, and, and the surroundings of Bird Canal, she could say that the fact that uh, Syria is happening today is a proof the world mm. hasn't learned its lesson from out from the Holocaust. Is a, is is a fact that she's not looking at all of the the memor the horrific memorabilia and the artifacts around Auschwitz Bird Canal as something locked and sealed in time, but as something that is is uh, is encompassing of all of all. Uh, historical memory and mm. memory of the present. I think that's very powerful. Now, there is, of course, a danger. And I think that what's happened and what is happening now is a sense of uh, uh, weaponization of the Holocaust, politicization yeah. of the Holocaust. So using the Holocaust as something... Uh, Elie, Elie Wiesel, in his book called Night, which is a bestseller, uh, wrote in a, in a separate place, he said that, that the Holocaust was not and man's inhumanity to man, it was man's inhumanity to Jews. And I think that that's, that's a danger. Because remember, mm. Holocaust is not just about Jews. It's in fact, you had 70 million people who killed the Holocaust. And many of them, in fact, millions were Slavs, were Poles, uh, around a quarter of a million were, were disabled children. And of course, the millions of Jews as well. So I think put together, of course, it was mass extermination of a people, but all sorts of people because the sense of Lebensraum of the Nazis in their um, uh, in their kind of uh, ethnic national project, Lebensraum means the uh, the sense of space, meant that the uh, the Nazis wanted Lebensraum, the creation of a new space, more sacred space, at the expense of all sorts of people, including the Jews and the Slavs mm. and the Poles and the mentally handicapped, disabled children. And so on and so forth. So I think it's it's a danger. In, so what do you, what do you say when what do you say to what do you how do you feel when you hear people kind of almost um, putting some kind of hierarchy or some kind of oppression Olympics almost that you know this uh, you know, you don't mention anything with the Holocaust because it was a unique kind of moment of cruelty against uh, the Jews. I, I, what I do think you hear as a historian? I think number one, no one has a monopoly in human suffering. No one has that. I'm reading a very powerful book right now. By the way, it's nothing to it. It's different. It's uh, mm. by a, a lady called Sumeha Mansur Khan. Mm. We are seeing ourselves, and she has a very beautiful line in that book and says that I will not write about myself because within myself is encapsulated the stories of other people, and I, I don't feel comfortable writing about those other people. And I took something profound, you know, from what she was writing in the sense that. Um, you know, she can't speak on behalf of everybody, anybody else because their lives are, are are profound and precious and she's unable to articulate the relevance of their lives. And I think that mm. we can make an association with human suffering because no one has a monopoly. You know, everybody mm. has a degree of suffering. And and if you think about the extent of suffering, that, that kind of involves so many people. We're not just talking about the lo loss of life, but loss mm. of society, loss of civilization, loss of culture, loss of, of human sanctity of being, all of these things are encapsulated in, in any human tragedy. So therefore, why Allah in the Quran speaks about dhulam as an injustice. Mm. And that injustice has many different layers, but the full extent of that, of course, will be known on Yom Al-Qiyamah, is that we make hypotheses in this life in terms of we count numbers being killed and this and that. But then again, there are different ways of evaluating the extent of human suffering based upon who's telling the story and mm. how it's being told. So I think that is is that incorrect therefore to 
to uh, for any people to say that our suffering was the worst of all suffering because uh, our vantage point, in fact, in life are very limited. In the Rabbi Kalim, mm. your Lord is all knowing, all wise. But that is not, of course, in any way take away from the tragedy of the killing of Jews in the Holocaust or any people in the Holocaust or any other people in mm -hmm. any conflict. Mm -hmm. So you've traveled to Auschwitz, you've traveled to Sarajevo. What lessons um, do you think are pertinent to share at this at this moment from those travels? Well, I think I think one thing, of course, is is just indifference. It's just a level mm. of indifference. It took, of course, a long time, years, for the world to rally behind what's happening in Sarajevo. I think the siege of Sarajevo was was a pivotal moment. Um, mm. I think that in Auschwitz, in, in Sarajevo, uh, in in Rwanda, you learn the types of people that emerge. You learn about perpetrators and their types and the victims and they're suffering and you learn about the 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 bystanders and they're in, they're just refusing to act and uh, when they should act and you learn about the rescuers those who did something to help other people so i think that in in all situations we have genocide and mass killing mass suffering you always have these groups of people that that tend to emerge one of the things so of the, the, one more that time that was perpetrators perpetrators the victims victims bystanders and the bystanders rescuers. and rescuers yeah, and of course, we want to be of the last paradigm here of the rescuers, thinking about how could we could make that difference to people. Now, of course, when it comes to rescuing, there is a sense of a person could have a sympathetic, uh, instantaneous sense of feeling for someone else and their suffering. But to have mm -hmm. real empathy means to have that sense of infeeling, to want to take somebody out of the suffering, to try and alleviate the suffering in some ways. And that really is a calling upon all of us as human beings, uh, particularly in this time, what's happening the genocide of Gaza. Uh, so I think that when it comes to learning about events of the Holocaust, you learn about how things happen. And of course, there is a very similar similar processing, uh, a kind of a procedure of events that lead to the 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 climax of, of, of human suffering. That for one thing, of course, is the the process of dehumanization that takes place mm. before the event. It's very powerful for us to remember that. Uh, nothing happens in a vacuum. You don't you don't happen like no one commits a genocide overnight. There is like an event, more like a kind of things happen over time. Mm -hmm. And one thing that happens over time, of course, is in, in, in the Nazis, you had a sense of what's called social death or social dying of the Jews. And what that meant is that not that you're killing all the Jews, but that you're excluding them. Like they're not important anymore. Uh, they're not to be associated with anymore. And that social death was very crucial in laying the, uh, the 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 groundwork for uh, language of dehumanization and other things that led to then the uh, the killing of, of the Jews en masse. Now the same thing, of course, exists today in Gaza. The same mm. processes exist because the Palestinians on um, on Israeli media are figured as as an inferior other. Uh, they're not given the sense, same sense of worth and privilege as as Israelis are, for example. Not just on Israeli media, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Even on our own media. In, in, and, uh, exactly. You know, yeah, yeah, so you have Israel all over the world. Yeah, so it's far more encompassing, therefore. Uh, the Palestinians are Arabs, and Arabs are the downtrodden, are the weak, and the, and the ignorant, and the, the, uh, the, the people who are kind of off the radar. And, um, and all of these things have a big effect. On my, one of my books I wrote called Navigating war, and empathy in Arab-US relations uh, has a lengthy sections on this and the way that Arabs in Western media, particularly in America, in cartoons, in films, in, in TV shows, are usually have always been the, uh, not the hero, but the, the one who is committing adultery or the ones, the terrorist or the ones committing mm. scandal or the thief, uh, never seen in, in a positive light. All of these things have an effect because they create uh, a sense of stereotyping in people. So what you have to do, therefore, to begin the process of empathizing is to unpeel these layers and layers and layers of stereotyping before you see the human being in that frame. And I think the same, of course, exists much, much worse now uh, in, in Israel because this, they, they don't see the Palestinians as, as fully human. And it's very similar because the Nazis, of course, had this concept of the uh, of the Untar Mensch, and they themselves, of course, mm. saw themselves as Uber. And this this connects to the Lebensraum, uh, meaning the the living space has to exist of people who are 
Ubermensch as opposed to Untermensch. So you can't have Untermensch in Lubenstrom uh, because the Nazis saw themselves as as victims of, of European brutality. So the, the same Nazis way saw I, themselves as as victims of yeah, yeah that that's why they they wanted to from World War One exactly yeah, yeah. so they, they had mm. to pay war reparations and they had to uh, deplete some of their army and they had I to, was going to uh, ask you this because um, you know lots of apologists and uh, for for the, you know Israeli crimes online on Twitter for example they they hit back at comparisons to Nazis and 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 so forth um, saying. Among, among other things, well, we've been attacked. We're just defending ourselves. You know, we're we're the ones who are the victim. We're the ones who are, you know, there's there's uh, some Palestinian did a terrorist attack or whatever, or they're throwing rockets and, you know, so we're defending ourselves. So we have to do this. Is is there some is there a parallel, in in the Nazi Holocaust of this type of of, of discourse? Yeah, there's an absolute parallel because, the Nazis were said the same things. The Nazis said that we are. Uh, being attacked, and the Nazis, in fact, they uh, they inflated numbers. They criticized and the scrutiny mm. of their actions by the Allied powers. Uh, the Nazis had had a very similar thing. Hadjo Meyer has a very good book called "The End of Judaism." He was an Auschwitz survivor, and he wrote the book "End of Judaism" uh, by drawing mm. connections between uh, he what he witnessed in the Holocaust as a survivor and what's happening in uh, Palestine today. Mm. And he made those connections by saying things wow. like. You know, whatever the Nazis did to us, we're replicating on the Palestinians today. And one of those things, of course, is, is the fact that uh, the Nazis saw themselves, Germans, sort of as victims, uh, mm. as as under oppression because of the strength of European powers, and that whenever they lashed out, they said that we're simply just defending ourselves. The, the, the Jews say the same thing today, but they also have the same thing as the Nazis, the fact that they, they, uh, they, uh, they, 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 um, what's the word to say? They, um, um, so when it comes to, for example, numbers, they exaggerate, inflate the numbers. That's right, the word inflate the numbers. Mm -hmm. uh, the same way that the Nazis did. Nazis, in fact, when they were attacked by the Allied powers, they said that we, that the, the numbers have been, they, they, they increased the numbers of how many Germans were being killed. Uh, how many times, of course, have we heard those news reports of stories of, mass rapes for example or mass beheadings and babies uh, beheadings and, as, and as all we, these types of things yeah as we progressed and even on israeli media they they said these these events didn't happen as mm. they as they were told to happen in first so now by that time of course those uh, in that information of mass beheadings mass rapes mm. beheading babies has already seeped into public public imagination therefore they already see the palestinians as horrific barbaric as evil as cruel sadistic and therefore, they use that to legitimize the, the the genocide against Palestinians. But people already therefore believe that. Now, of course, it takes time. If even if they change the narrative after two or three weeks, the damage already done. And it's a bit like, for example, in one of my books, I have a chapter on the killing of Abir Qasim Al Janabi, two thousand three mm. in Iraq war. Her and her entire family, the Mahmoudia family, uh, in the Al Janabi family in, in Mahmoudia in Iraq. And uh, the American media began to say initially she was 14 years old. And that carried through like weeks, weeks, weeks until they said, sorry, she said my mistake. They said she was 25 years old mm. and she was actually 14 years old. So raping and murdering a 25 year old is just not the same as a 40 because 14 year old is a child. Another one is a woman. But by that time, of course, that idea of of killing, raping a 25-year-old had already seeped into people's imaginations. And then, of course, they changed it later, but it was kind of, it was a bit yeah. too late in the day. And I think the same thing is happening I mean, look, looking at looking at the uh, other Israeli kind of uh, defenses, it seems that people are naturally going to be more, you know, sympathetic or, or more likely to just kind of look the other way or be a bystander or even a perpetrator of genocide. If you have, if you give them that sense of, we're under attack with this some existential threat. We're going to be wiped out if we don't do this, right? And, and and it sounds like there's a there's a similar thing to learn from the from the from the Holocaust as well in, in that regard. Yeah, for sure. Because remember that the 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 Nazis projected the Jews as they called them rats, mm. vermin, an infestation that had to be cleansed, removed. 
for people's uh, you know safety, security, and the same language being used today on the Palestinians as rats, as vermin, as cockroaches, as infestations. Yeah, exactly. That had yeah. to be removed in order for uh, our own survival. That's the same kind of uh, mentality mm. of the Nazis. For our own survival, they have to be removed for us to be saved. The same thing is, in fact, today when it comes to Gaza. Yeah, they have to be removed for us to be safe. You know, that's that's a, that's, that's right. a common theme, you know, the, the removal of... So that's part of the, I guess, extensive propaganda, right? So the, right. The, the Nazis were known for the extensive media propaganda before no. the, 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 the industrialized killing began in the, in the Holocaust, right? What are, the, what are the parallels that you've noticed of that and what's happening in Palestine? Because we've had almost like a, a type of preparation we've seen for kind of escalating the, the killing and the, the, the ethnic cleansing, the wiping out of Palestinians. You've had that kind of, you know, periodic mowing the lawn that they would do they're yeah. the slow kind of, um, you know, uh, poisoning of Gaza, the world's biggest, you know, um, open air concentration camp. The slow starving of its people, even before October seventh, obviously, you know, the just letting, you know, uh, what Norman Finkelstein calls starvation plus, you know, amount of calories into into Gaza, um, not starvation, but just just above starvation, just so kind of slowly. Um, kind of while the world's looking away, kind of getting getting rid of these people. Um, you've had um, uh, political kind of uh, you know allies from of the of the Zionist entity, kind of in the UK and the US, for example, um, prescribing many organisations that are that are doing work, um, highlighting or resisting uh, the illegal occupation and the legal sieges. Um, you know, we, we've seen from, from, from 20 years ago, 30 years ago plus maybe, kind of slowly preparing or laying down the framework. And obviously, the the discourse, the narrative, right? They're, 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 we're under attack, they're, we're defending ourselves, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're terrorists, they've always hated us, they, uh, and so forth. So what are, what are parallels do you see, you know, with the, the, on the media propaganda kind of campaign front? Between the between the Holocaust and what's happening in Palestine, yeah, there's many. Like you mentioned, uh, I remember you know when I when we went to Auschwitz, we drove from uh, Krakow, which is a cultural hub of Poland, to Auschwitz. But we passed by a town or a village called Oswegian, and we were told that Oswegian was like this um, industrial city during the Holocaust and it provided a bit of a cover, you know, for the world because they couldn't believe like, how could you have the horrors of Holocaust happening right next to industrial center called Oswegia. Mm. Um, and I think that that sense of cover is, is very typical and it's very uh, repeated today. The same way that people see, for example, progress of Tel Aviv, for example, and they talk about Tel Aviv and industry and progress and and scientific wonders and big buildings, whatever. And then, of course, just around the corner, you have a genocide committed against people of Gaza. And I think that that sense of a fake veneer of civility should never be mm. a distraction for us because that can be, and it should never. And I think that that's something that we should be wary of today because sometimes it's within the cloak of civility that people can commit the worst of all deeds. Uh, Philip Muller, by the way, in his book called Eyewitness Auschwitz, speaks about something similar to what you said about this idea that the Nazis starved the Jews, by the way, as well. Mm. They began to restrict them from food and even clothing until you would have people like these Jews in the death camps going around half-naked and and like searching for food and because they look like in their minds of the nazis they look like animals uh, mm. it was easy for them to be killed in that state meaning meaning that eroded their humanity from them and it kind of made them a seen as more animalistic as opposed to human and i think mm. the same exists in fact now with the palestinians and with the people of gaza because by by denying them basic uh resources in life like food water 
and and fuel like that you all got out and said in the beginning of the holocaust mm. and the genocide that we will restrict these things and call them human animals so like therefore in the same breath calling them human animals and then by also saying that they don't deserve human their sort of water and food and and fuel is exactly the same thing that the nazi were doing exactly the same thing meaning uh human animals as they're not fully human because they're subhuman and then therefore uh, such subhuman entities don't deserve to be privileged with having the basic necessities of life that would allow them to survive because they're not deserving of that because they're not fully human. So all of these things, therefore, have an effect on that. Now, of course, if you think about in Israeli media, where you don't see, in fact, the fullness of the suffering mm. happening in Gaza, you don't see what we see. You don't see on, on Israeli media. You only see repeated images of, of the events of October the 7th and that providing, therefore, the, the, the rationale, the reason, the etra for the genocide, uh, that's placed in the country because, because that means that they're not seeing the victimization of mm. the Palestinians of, of Gaza. They're not seeing that. And that plays, therefore, into that. The same way, in fact, that the, 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 the Nazis uh, sought to provide a cover for the killing of the Jews by having gas chambers. And gas chambers, by the way, there was a psychology behind it because it meant that uh, as opposed to simply killing, uh, and, 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 I've, and I've seen where they would line the Jews up and, and, and max execute them. And I should, mm. I've seen I've seen the walls in Auschwitz Birkenau. I've seen the people laying flowers. I've seen all of that stuff. And but remember that was only for a time because there came a point where the Nazi leaders said that that's problematic because it would mean that people are therefore seeing the full scale of. Of a humanized suffering in the sense that when a person shoots another person mm -hmm. that is going to have to deal with layers of like uh like um empathy they just overcome like it reminders will see that... the person begging for help he will see the blood he will see mm. the person begging for all that stuff but then they would say for example the uh we're not kidding because the fans are, are doing everything the fans are mm -hmm. running and and that's a way so therefore Dave Grossman in his book on killing speaks about altitude attitude. So the fact that you could have a bomber uh, flying a jet from a plane, yeah, from a plane exactly, thing. and it's, it's the same thing. It's much worse it's actually separation. because people exactly. And by the time, like he says, that by the time he even the bomb drops, he's miles away somewhere yeah. in the skies, and we'll go back to uh, to to eating, uh, you know, in McDonald's, for example. I mean, he's not. He has no sense of empathy for for what is just done that's what uh, a, a pakistani pilot actually said to me once um a, a fighter pilot who was part of the army he left because you know he was given orders to um you know basically go and, and, and you know um bomb villages within pakistan near the border with afghanistan so in khaybar pakhtun province under the guise of you know fighting terrorism, this this kind of yeah. carte blanche to do all kinds of things from uh, all kinds of horrors, um, and he said the the thing that really hit me was once we flew a bit too close to the ground, and I could make out, you know, houses, rooftops, people, you know, just just looking at us, and 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 he said just something from there that 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 day. I refused to follow orders and and, no, and, and left sure. it and left the military. I just showed because uh, his book speaks about altitude and attitude, meaning the higher up you are in altitude, the mm. uh, more of an attitudinal change you will have. And so, if you're too high up, then of course it creates a sense of uh, like the poem called "Hawk Roosting." The hawk is too high up, and the hawk sees itself as as almost like this. The, the poet has the poet has this kind of a the kind of god complex of the hawk like invincible because it's so high up and the more high up you go the more safe you feel and it's interesting that uh, an example in the quran of the son of nuh salam, who was high up in the mountain and says that the mountain will save me because maybe because of its height mm. and it's interesting in the quran you have this really beautiful kind of uh juxtaposing like for example in surah teen in the quran what what teen was a torn uh, well, like the theme and the, the the mount the Damascus, which is mountainous, and some ulama they say it's a allusion to landscapes. So the uh, the olive, the the fig, which is like Damascus, Allah is best, and then the olive, as in Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, and then the 
the Mount Sinai, and then the, the Makkah, which is mountainous. So all kind of high landscapes. But then Allah goes on to say that man can therefore descend to the lowest of the low. And so even mm-hmm. though you have a physical height uh, that could be there, and Allah in the Quran says, Don't walk on the earth with insolence. In the you can't penetrate the mountains. You can't reach out the mountains, nor can you penetrate the earth. Meaning, you know, always have that sense of humility in yourself. Mm. But the altitude, in fact, can can create this complex in people feeling a sense of invincibility about themselves. And so the more people are therefore down with people, mm. like for example, Dave Grossman says it's harder for a person to stab a person uh, with a one knife, harder, harder, than it is for a person uh, you know, high up in the sky to press a button yeah. and then kill thousands of people. It's easier if that happened because mm-hmm. he's too high up to make... To, that to height make, is in, interesting as well. You know, Allah says, Inna fir'auna ala fil ard. Yeah, ala fil ard, yeah, exactly. You know, he he yeah. was haughty, and but the, linguistically it's kind of, there's, there's, there's connotations exactly. of height, you know, and, and, and trying to be above people and and uh, subhanAllah. One thing that uh, someone mentioned, it's actually an Israeli, a former Israeli uh, soldier, he said that they were actually given kind of drugs. You talk about altitude and attitude. They were actually given drugs, almost to make it easier for them to help for, to help them cope with carrying out, you know, atrocities when 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 you know um, working with the IDF. Have you wow. come across that? Yes, I haven't myself, but I have come across uh, Christopher Browning's book called Ordinary Men, in mm. which he says that sometimes the Nazis were so sick of killing, they would uh, shoot upwards like above the heads of, of people yeah. because they were so uh, unwilling to kill anymore and i think that that's the reflection of the fact that you know within us is a sense of humanity they yeah. wouldn't want to do that iran iran afrati who was an idf soldier then stationed in the in the west bank writes in his book in in one of the sections uh which i cite one of my books he says that i couldn't get it i, I couldn't think about I, I thought about the way that the nazis how could a Nazi uh, embrace his wife and kiss his child, then go out and then gas people to death? I couldn't get that until mm-hmm. I went myself uh, to the uh, West Bank occupied territories. And I saw myself in that same frame. And then, he, of course, he left the army. But the mm-hmm. fact he could make that connection between what they're doing then and what he's doing now. And I think yeah. that it's about our, every pers- everybody uh, yeah, needs to look yeah. within themselves and, and think, well, what is the where is my human consciousness in all of this and what kind of parameters of indifference could i be exposed to in my yeah. context that could have an effect on the responsibility of empathizing with people in their suffering today and i think that that's that's a moral obligation upon all of us and i think that there's a moral mm-hmm. inhibition when it comes to of course um you know genocide uh, in gaza holocaust for example because in both categories of people this moral inhibition with the fact that um, you know you're not seeing them as full humans, and so therefore, mm. by castigating them as as an existential other, as undeserving, as different to you, as uh, animalistic, all of these things, um, you know, tap into. It. But but remember, of course, that the example of Irena Frati is an example, and what you mentioned, the fact that this leaves an ugliness, a, a blemish, a stain. On a person's human contribution because it's going to catch up with a person mm. and so you you're, remember that what what I, the key thing is that no other is created without first the creation of the self the self has to be formed first before the other is created from the self so what you do therefore is that you you first typify yourself with the best of everything in you and so therefore if you're the best that ever existed then the other is the worst that have existed. So if you create yourself in a particular mode and in, in, mm. in a way, then it's easy, therefore, to have an other different to you, meaning the worst of human traits are then expressed on that other of all selfishness, of all hatred, of all evil on that other. And then, of course, it's perfect. And it's like, you know, you, you, you paint others with white brushes, broad strokes, and that sense of fullness of humanity yeah. is... Is, is missing from that person so it reminds me of um something a, f- a friend of ours uh, uh, a friend of mine uh, imam tom fakin he mentioned about the the kind of entanglement of liberalism and liberal philosophy 
in into what's happening right now because even if you look at the language of um, apologists for Israeli genocide of, of Gaza, you know they'll use language uh, and and metaphors and symbols like you know this is the liberal kind of democratic kind of Western state fighting against radical Islam, fighting against radical terrorists, the ISIS beheading style people. This is um, and and he said you know like it's within the 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 architects of liberal thought that you have to paint you have to create at the same time as the liberal self you have to create the illiberal other yeah, who sure. is worthy of worthy of reparative violence worthy of all kinds all manner of you know oppression against them because and and you know the example the, the metaphor that's given is you know like you're 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 building a garden in the jungle and the garden has to be fiercely protected because the weeds the tentacles from the jungle you know, and and even that language, you can you can think about you know where where that head where that where that's headed, the jungle. You know, it tries to encroach and 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 you know grow into the garden, but you have to take the machete to it, you know, in order to kind of um, um, uh, preserve the 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 superior, the 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 enlightened, the kind of liberal self, the the garden, the um, the city on the hill. These types of kind of metaphors, right? And and that that's really kind of uh it's hard to it's hard not to see it once you once you've heard it you know with with all the the kind of language the the, the propaganda the, the the apologetics for uh you know the zionist entity yeah. um, but i, I wonder i don't want, want to pick up on a few things you said but before that we were talking about propaganda and i was just it just came to my mind that um when we were talking to fahad ansari a few weeks ago he was mentioning that you know um in nuremberg in the nuremberg trials it wasn't just the Nazi officers or people who are carrying out the, or at the end of the actual, you know, the 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 people shooting the gun, but it was actually also people who, um, you know, were editors of publications, propagandists, and people who were actually spreading dehumanizing propaganda. They were also on trial in the Nuremberg trials, and and I think three of them faced uh, the death penalty or something. You know, kind of senior members of. Um, newspapers and so forth. Um, I wonder sometimes, you know, that when we see people on Twitter or in in the, in the legacy or the so-called mainstream news, I wonder if, you know, one day I hope that you know we as a world can bring them to account as well. You know, just like people who um, were editing and and writing publications and drawing pictures of you know dehumanizing um, Jews and other victims of the Holocaust. Will we, do you think we'll see something similar again when it comes to um, the perpetrators of, 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 or the facilitators of genocide in Gaza? Well, brother, there is a day called Qiyamah. There is a day. <laughs> there is a day of Qiyamah. There is a day, and the Prophet of Allah says that what drags people on their faces into the fire of except for the harvest of the tongues. So I think that the Prophet of Allah says that every morning son of Adam wakes up, his limbs they shake in the prince of the tongue, and they say they say, O tongue for Allah concerning us, because if you're straight, we're straight. If you're bad, if you're crooked, we're crooked. So therefore we're we're told to be very mindful of, of things that we do. And of course things have consequences. So remember that, you know, every single person who did something to facilitate to further the agenda of genocide uh, could be a whole mm. spectrum of people. It could be like, for example, now, like the Nazis, for example, had a whole propaganda machine, including school teachers, including nursery teachers, including a whole like system that would indoctrinate children to despise, hate Jews and other people that made then the events of Holocaust happen at the end of the day. The same thing is in fact today in Gaza or in Israel leads to Gaza because there's many school teachers involved in that process of, 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 of propaganda. Uh, media, machinery, for example, you know, like sermonizers, uh, rabbis, so many people of faith, no faith, are involved in this process. And I think that that's the, that's the thing. So it's not one people involved or one type of people doing this. It's a whole spectrum of people that plays a role in this. And uh, should make us number one more conscious of ourselves in terms of not, of course, being, yeah. uh, you know, like using our, our ourselves in a, an effective way in all things 
that's not going to, of course, in any way um, lead to a sin or transgression against other people because that's the effect of something. It's a bit like the very famous story, um, uh, An Inspector Calls by J.B. Priestley. And the whole point of, of that play is that Priestley is showing people uh the whole context is pre-world war one so 1913 i think this set and it's shown 1946 after second world war so in between you have these two world wars and you have a family who is so well settled as upper middle class and they're all safe and everything's good everything's fine uh but they've all been involved in the uh, abuse and then suicide of a girl called eva smith and every family member of that budding family Arthur Belling, his wife, Sheila, Eric, Gerald, have all been involved in that uh, mm. in a secret way until the girl, of course, kills herself. And then uh, once at one point when when the, when Mr. Belling is saying, well, this isn't our problem because she killed herself and whatever. And uh, the inspector replies and says, um, yeah, but whatever happened to her then affected what happened to her afterwards. Whatever happened to her afterwards, if you want, meaning he's saying that there was a whole trajectory of events mm. that you played a role in this and you thought you were safe. So in the beginning of the of the play, you have this symbolism of the Titanic and Mr. Budding said Titanic is unsinkable, absolutely unsinkable. But of course, by the time uh, the play is uh, shown to public, Titanic has already sunk. And it's a bit like the Budding family that they think they're unsinkable, but, but they also sink mm -hmm. as a family. And I think that that's a consequence of things that they say and do that have repercussions. So therefore, and this is a much bigger context, what's happening in war and suffering, that everybody plays a role in that. In, in Rwanda, by the way, in 1994, in genocide of Rwanda, uh, in, in, in what happened after genocide of Rwanda, in, in the months that followed after the horrific 1900 days of genocide, they realized that women had a role to play because they were making uh, meals for their husbands in the morning of meat, meat dishes, knowing that husbands are going out in the morning uh, and what they call cleaning the fields, like mowing the lawn, mm. like cleaning the, the, toot, the Tutsis. Uh, but the, the women were not actively killing people. I mean, some they did, but they were cooking food for the husbands, knowing the husbands needed the energy to kill people. Therefore, they made them responsible as mm. well. And, uh, and then, of course, you had these uh, remarkable efforts of trying to reteach uh, women, girls, in fact, survivors, about the importance of, of, uh, of motherhood, of maternal instincts, that you don't want to lose yourself in the process that we wouldn't know how to be mothers anymore because a mother doesn't, doesn't do that, mm -hmm. uh, prevents that happening. And so um, I think these are all very profound things for us to reflect on. Yeah. I mean, in this whole milieu, so you have people um, in Israel today, just like Nazi Germany, that are playing their part, so to speak, in so many aspects of society. You also have people that are actually, you know, going against the 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 grain, right? So you mentioned in you your your trip to Munich. You mentioned something called the White Rose Movement. Why is that important today, as far as to, to think about in, in in during the Holocaust? Yeah, subhanAllah. I, I went to Munich last year, subhanAllah. Mm. And uh, and I, I wanted to show my family these. You know, I, I've always, uh, I've written, uh, subhanAllah, like I've incorporated this in two of my books, but I've never seen the site. And uh, White Rose Movement, I think, is very powerful because these were young activists uh, in 1942, 43, and they um, they became connected because of this deep concern they had to prevent an injustice in terms of killing of innocent people mm -hmm. and also a fear that Germany would go to war against Russia and get defeated and that would lead to death of, of German people. They began to write these leaflets, <coughs> but they use a, a manual copier as a machine and then they would rent this uh, apartment out uh, and uh, they would work in the night without the lights on, so in the darkness and they would pen these leaflets and then copy them manually and buy envelopes en masse and then post these all out to major cities in Germany, uh, Stuttgart and Munich and Ulm and other cities until they became so, like the Hitler was so scared he thought there was some kind of a Russian conspiracy, but they were just young activists, they were young, beautiful, like Sophie mm -hmm. Scholl, her, her brother Hans Scholl, Christopher Brobst, uh, a few other people. 
um, you know, and uh, and then what happened is on February 18th, 1943, they left their homes, brother and sister, and they wanted to go to Munich University and um, and and kind of leave these piles of leaflets on the columns of, of on the foot of these columns in the university. And then they were caught. They were caught coming down the stairs and uh, they were charged with high treason, put on mm. trial and then put under the guillotine on February 22nd, 1943. And um, so we went to see the whole thing. We went, they have on the on the ground floor, a whole museum for Sophie Scholl now. By the way, the road leading to the museum is called Sophie Scholl Plaza, you know, mm. and uh, it's remarkable. And so there's a few things for us to think about. Now, one thing, of course, is the fact that you have this, you know, the, the Nazis had Sophie Scholl and Whitehurst movement in a in a in a tabloid in one of their papers, a small article like these silly, naive, ignorant children who had kind of no clue about anything. And uh, and that's kind of what all they gave her. But now today in Germany there are more than two hundred and fifty schools named after Sophie Scholl. Mm. And um, the highest academic prize is called a Sophie Award. And there's so many kind of accolades therefore given under in, under her name. Now, of course, we have two things to think about. One, of course, is the fact that um, the ones who resist are brave people, undeniably are brave people. They risk their own lives and their reputation and their work and their class, everything, in order to save the lives of other people. And there's many people around the world. The example of Rachel Corey, some I, I, in my book, uh, I have a later section on her, Rachel Corey, who was killed by the by the by the Zionists uh, defending the home of a Palestinian? Uh, she was bulldozed to death. Mm. So, uh, in one of her, <coughs> one of her earliest recordings, as a young child, she gave a speech calling, uh, "I'm here because mm. I care. I'm here because I care." And that really is I mean, uh, so we see Zionists still still making fun of her on Twitter and and, and yeah, yeah, for and, sure, for sure, they're bound mm. to, you know. But she's someone who worked with the International Solidarity Movement, and uh, you know she was very effective in 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 her resolve in campaigning, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for that. So she wrote. I mean, her letters were then collected, became part of a book uh, that her parents kind of uh, put together on her behalf afterwards. Yeah. So people like Rachel Corey, people like Sophie Scholl, people like other people all around the world who do something to help uh, and assist the people who are oppressed in a world are very admirable and they should be kind of considered as people yeah. you know worthy of our mention because they've done something that affects us as human people and we learn motifs of courage and resistance and patience perseverance also from them in their own ways that they did but this is another thing remember of course that germany is a germany is a society that uh, on the one hand of course they uh, they campaigned against the icj in south africa in yeah. calling what happening in uh, Gaza a genocide, um, Germany is is remember that Germany has this sense of uh, almost like guilt because of the Holocaust. It has a sense of guilt yeah. because of what they think was done in their name. Now, of course, there's much to be said for that. Uh, you know, you have uh, Theodor Adorno and his article on education after Auschwitz. He wrote this for German people mm -hmm. because he believed that after Auschwitz there should be a new sense of pedagogy of learning, of, of teaching. They should be a kind of a, a incorporating of things like courage, moral courage, as a pedagogy of, of education, of learning. Uh, he's saying he said that in Germany it didn't exist. That German mothers. Do you think that's being undone now because of the? It seems many people are saying, look, Germany appears not have, not to have learned its lesson. With well, this is the point I'm making. This is the point I'm making exactly. Mm. So. It's a bit like, you know, they they should not be cowardice in, mm. in thinking about offending people. They should think about the broader consequence of what's happening here. I mean, this is the whole point that the point you made in the beginning about that lady who said that, uh, who made a comparison between the Holocaust and Gaza. Yeah. It's that that we need today to make the Kate connection for the, the Polish lady in, in Birkenau, Auschwitz, our, our tour guide, who made that connection between Syria and the Holocaust. Yeah. Uh, not to say, therefore, Holocaust happened once upon a once once in the human history, and we were responsible. Therefore, that we can't voice anything that would offend uh, the uh, descendants of the survive of the of the people of the Holocaust. No, people who are brave are people like Hajjo Maya. 
Hajomaya, uh, Stefan Essel, by the way, was also a Holocaust survivor. He wrote a book called um, uh, uh, Indignez-vous, Indignez-vous, meaning uh, Time for Outrage. And mm -hmm. he wrote the book at the age of 91, if I remember that, in three. And uh, he wrote that book, and his penultimate chapter is uh, Indignation over Palestine. He says that the greatest indignation I have in the world today is what happens to the Palestinians. And that's coming, of course, as a Jew, as a Holocaust survivor. And I think that those voices are, are more credible than people like Elie Wiesel, mm. who kind of seek to uh, politicize or weaponize the Holocaust only on behalf hijack it. of... Yeah, hijack it. I think that we should be more morally courageous and brave than that. And for mm. our children, for the next generation of people to realize that that's not the way that we should teach history, Although we should appreciate human lessons from history, but there should be a bigger, broader consciousness uh, in the fact that we can make associations with whatever happened then should not happen today. And mm. there are similar strands in what happened yesterday that <coughs> if they're happening today, that shows that human beings have not learned the lesson. And that exactly are the words of, of our tour guide in, in Birkenau Auschwitz. Yeah. So on the, on the topic of, of the spirit of resistance, and um, so you mentioned the white, you mentioned the white rose movement. Who are the refuseniks in Israel? Is that yeah. are those, uh, Is there like a, a parallel here with with the people in the Holocaust? Yeah, it's good. Yeah, refuseniks are are people who refuse to serve in the IDF. They refuse to serve. So and you mentioned people maybe like uh, Iran. Uh, what is uh, Iran? Yeah, I, I think he might even be a, yeah. a member. He might even be from the refuseniks, and yeah. there are many, many of them. There's a very good book called Refuseniks mm. about them. And also in my book on being human, uh, I talk about them uh, as well. So um, Refuseniks are, in fact, uh, a people who act on, I think, moral courage. The fact that they, they see, mm. on the one hand, of course, all this propaganda in the media against the Palestinians, and then they can see for themselves what's happening, like with the, with the eyes, they can see for themselves what's happening in, in the West Bank occupied territories, and they realize that you know what we're doing to those people is horrendous. It's just evil and horrendous, and it mm. can't be therefore that we claim something for ourselves and then inflict such uh, such evil and dehumanization on those innocent Palestinians. And so, out of that moral courage, they therefore leave the IDF. They serve time in prison, and they ostracize from their families, but they're remembered. Uh, yeah. And they're championed by people of courage and resistance because because that sense of sacrifice uh, is required uh, rather than, of course, playing a role in the subjugation and, and killing and torture and abuse yeah. against Palestinians. I think that that's the that's the correct thing to do. Was it was, was there like a, a similar type of refuseniks during the Holocaust as well? Um yeah, I think I think that you know many, like I said, uh, Christopher Browning's book "Ordinary Man" is is a good read because it speaks about the fact that Nazis, uh, not all Nazis were Nazis, so to speak. Um, there's a village called village of just Josephau, and you know where where the Nazis told the uh, the soldiers to kill a whole village of Jews. Many of them refused to do that. Many of them pretend to, pretend to be sick, for example, that they were mm. sick, they had stomach problems, and they made those excuses so as to avoid the killing of innocent people. That does mm. happen. I think that does happen. I think across the board, uh, you are bound to find people here and there who are going to mm. refuse orders, uh, you know, brave people, like you know, courageous people who refuse orders, and they would, in fact, uh, prefer to be on the side of the downtrodden yeah. uh, and the victimized as opposed to being uh, perpetrators. And then, of course, they uh, they share the sin, the whole sin of, of of that crime. So I think that in all those examples of the refuseniks of of Sophie Scholl, of uh, people like Richard Corey, and uh, and uh, and even like individual people here and there who might refuse to take part in that murder, mm. um, that are very profound. There are, of course, profound stories of people who who help people uh, escape suffering in the Holocaust, for example, who saved the lives of. Of so many Jews, for example. By the way, Muslims play that yeah. very fundamental role. I was um, going to ask, you know, what was where were the Muslims during the Holocaust? You know, what yeah. was this? A big kind of chapter a in the last century. It's, it's a good question. 
um muslims played a very you know i was on a i was once on a on a train in ireland and i was going either from dublin to galway or galway to dublin and uh, the whole carriage was just uh full of you know white uh, irish people i was the only asian the whole carriage muslim and uh so i was sitting and and my my section was all uh, you know uh white irish women uh like elderly women and and so uh when i i thought i better make a conversation because it's good to give dawah whenever you can inshallah so i had a, a big pack of sweets with me and i began to share them with these ladies yeah and uh and they were so happy to get sweet and she and one said to me uh what are you doing here like what are you doing in Ireland? <laughs> i said i'm here to speak about islam and the life of the prophet Muhammad be upon him and i began to share examples of the prophet and empathy and this and that and i said i've just come from auschwitz because there was true i just came from auschwitz at the time mm. and uh and i was speaking and i said i spoke about the uh resistance of the muslims or who saved the lives of so many jews for example the imam of paris uh who began to hide jewish children in the basement of the mosque and to teach them some arabic words and arabic songs and disguise them as muslims so as to prevent them being killed by the nazis and uh, north africa examples you know so many examples of muslims saving lives of jews in the holocaust mm. um the you had the example of mirella hassan uh david guez you know saying like you know we remember that the ones who would give us two loaves of bread were muslim arabs and that the ones who would uh, nurse my sisters will be arab muslims you know like, i mean so many mm. a very good book called uh, among the righteous by uh, robert satloff about the roles of uh, Muslim Arabs <coughs> in the Holocaust who saved their lives. But this mm. is not just because of, of the Holocaust. You also have the same thing in Rwanda. Uh, the last chapter of my book on being human is dedicated to Rwanda uh, as a paradigm of, of remarkable resistance and dawah, in fact, because they uh, showed the best of, of Muslim character in those mm. times by, uh, by rescuing uh, Christian Tutsis on the hunt, uh, hunted by christian rwandan hutus and they disguised mm. muslims hit them in the mosques um you know and they prevent them from being killed but this is kind of a typical story you'll find muslims act yeah. on very strong and by the way also in the holocaust you had the albanians albanians acted on the on the code of the visa visa meaning honoring the pledge the right meaning and this is an islamic code uh the fact that when the nazis invaded uh, albania the Muslims would send the Jews to the countryside so that they wouldn't be seen in the city centers. Mm. And then in the countryside, they would disguise them as Muslims and so on and so forth. And so many examples of bravery and courage in uh, in saving the lives of other people. That, of course, is an Islamic duty upon all of us at all times. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to, you know, carry on talking for hours and hours, but I'm just conscious of the time. You've, uh, you've, you've uh, shed a lot of time sort of let, shed a lot of light on you know what we can learn about the holocaust uh the lessons the enduring lessons um for today uh particularly in in light of what's happening in gaza may Allah help the brothers and sisters and, and people anywhere suffering uh, unjustly um I just uh, ask one final kind of quick fire um question at the end um just kind of answer just from the hip just from the heart if it's one thing um our audience should remember from this podcast it's it's what i wanted to remember the prophetic hadith in that he said he says the prophet of allah says beware of dhulam beware of injustice hmm. because injustice is darknesses on yom al-qiyamah and so he says lulumat meaning a plural of darknesses layers of darknesses and so uh, beware of zulm in your speech, beware of zulm in your character, beware of zulm against against people, because it requires upon all of us to be, uh, you know, active advocates of justice and not of oppression against any people. And that, of course, is Islam, to act uprightly, to act with decency, to act with noble manners, to act with justice. The Prophet of Allah says that, um, he says that, uh, you know, help the oppressed and the oppressor. In the hadith of Bukhari and the Sahaba, they said, "How okay? We understand helping the yeah. oppressed. How do we help the oppressor?" He says, "Stop him from being an oppressor, and mm. therefore to be active in preventing zulm 
in all times against any people is a fundamental obligation upon the Muslims at all times. So I think that's what I would say. Zakma Khairan Sheikh, Dr. Uthman Latif for uh, for sharing those insights. We'll put the um, uh, the links to your 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 books and some of your articles in the description below. Zakma Khairan for joining. And Zakma uh, Khairan for you joining at home, brothers and sisters, wherever you're watching or listening. If you like this podcast, give a like and a share. Uh, thumbs up, five star rating, wherever you're finding this podcast. And uh, if you don't know where to find this podcast, you can find them on uh, all the podcast platforms. You can get the audio straight to your uh, phone or your device or whatever. So, Zakma Khairan, let us know in the comments if you agree, disagree, if you'd like to get involved in the conversation. Uh, until next time, I've been your host, Salman Bhatt. Thank you again for uh, our. Uh, gracious guest Dr. Sheikh Uthman Latif and uh, from the Islam Trinity team that's it from me Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh